All right, um, we are in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. This is uh, a text that is really a great one for all of us to think about in terms of how to live the Christian life. How to live the Christian life. It's running a good race. And if you know me, I'm somewhat of a sports fan, and I like the themes in Scripture that pick up on athletics and sports. Um, I was kind of raised to love sports. I'm not uh, like my older brother is. He's, he's real detailed with statistics. He always, back in the days when there were newspapers, you remember those? He would lay out in all the fine print, look at all the batting averages, and talk about sports. And he had uh, 20,000 baseball cards at one point, all completely, you know, systematized and organized in drawers with the team names and things, had a Mickey Mantle signed card. And then, you know, he went the way of all flesh and sold that to buy his wife's wedding ring. But sports, sports are in, in just sort of, they were put into my heart early on. One time we went to Fenway Park and watched the Boston Red Sox and they were playing my favorite team then, the Kansas City Royals. And the Royals won and they beat the Red Sox, my brother's favorite team. It was awesome. Sorry, Chris GNA in the back. Um, George Brett hit a home run. It was, it was fantastic. But I was a little guy. Um, Owen's not in our, our um, worship center this morning, but I was just like about his size. And I got to go in the back um, when all the Red Sox were leaving and departing from the locker room at the end of the game. And my dad threw a baseball over to me. I caught it and got all of the Red Sox of the 80s, all of their autographs, minus one. Carl Jastrzemski like ghosted us somehow, but I ended up getting Jim Rice's autograph. And for you baseball aficionados, you understand that was a pretty big deal. Wade Boggs was around, Dwight Evans. It was pretty cool. But sports, uh, again, they, it just was sewn into my heart um, to love them. My dad coached a lot with baseball and basketball. I wrestled a little bit. Um, I enjoy watching my kids uh, compete here at Grace Christian School in different various ways. Um, I adopt teams during the playoffs. It doesn't matter if I haven't watched them all season long. Playoffs will hit. I mean, some of you know, you, I, I get a little exercised and enjoy doing that. One time I was watching the Stanley Cup. I never watch hockey. I adopted a team during the game. I'm screaming, shouting over things that are happening. My wife's going, you don't even watch hockey. What are you doing? Recently, I mean, it, the, this thing goes on. I, uh, I actually, through the miracle of uh, media, through Instagram, Instagram messaged a um, football hero of mine because he's just, he's on my Instagram. He's there. I wonder if this will go to his phone. It did. I thanked him for inspiring me as a kid. He said, hey, thanks for being a fan, a connection. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> I think I helped him. I don't know, you know, I want to contribute. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it's, it's a picture of the Christian life. Sports, it was said to me by um, one of our pastors this week, it is a microcosm of all of life. Well, this, this really boils down the Christian life with a sports theme. It's the idea of running a marathon. Christians are runners. You say, I'm not a runner. Well, if you're a believer in the sense of being a spiritual person, a person who's spiritually alive, you're running a race toward heaven. That's the picture here. It's functionally saying in these two verses, you need to be prepared to persevere the long race. This is the how-to on how to run a good marathon race and finish and finish well. Let me read these verses. Therefore, 
since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, Christians are runners. By the way, I never plan to run a real marathon. Uh, I don't have a knee that would permit me to do that. I wouldn't probably make it. But if I did have the, you know, knees to run, I probably would consider it just because the idea of endurance and hanging on is so essential and part and parcel to everything in life. We run our own, we run our own races and this is showing how to do it. I actually picked up a swimming sport. Um, I play water polo in the, the master's um, level, which means you can be an older guy and still um, compete and do that. It works with the knees to do that. It gets me at UAA with the club uh, once a week. And it gets me around unbelievers, which I enjoy doing that. I actually went to a, a tournament a couple weeks ago, and I've done a couple of them before. So I knew what I was in for. I knew it was going to be terrible and just an awful experience because... You know, you're really out of breath uh, the whole game. And people say, whenever I say I play water polo, they say, so do you have to tread water the whole time? Uh, Yeah, that's the point. You're you're up and doing that. And uh, it it just, you know, it's a way to kind of stress manage and enjoy people and enjoy competition. Well, I actually went to that tournament and they have different club teams from and college club teams uh, that are from the Pacific Northwest, some Californian, some Canadian, and then Alaskan. So it was a lot of, a lot of different levels and leagues going. And I was able to get out there. And when I first started in the tournament, because you're playing four games over the weekend, the first game, the first whistle, I'm going back and forth with these younger college guys. And, you know, and I had trained a lot, probably like a, like a marathon trainer, you know, for about three months, hitting the weights, hitting the, the cycle, um, swimming laps for hours, scrimmaging. But within that first minute, I, I had thoughts where I thought, man, I have been living delusions of grandeur. Why am I here? What am I doing? I really do feel like I'm going to die. I want to get out and get on the sidelines right now and be a spectator like every normal 40-something-year-old. But my conditioning took over, and I was fine and ended up reaching some personal goals. So it was, it was really good, um, good to do that, and I enjoyed it. But I say all that just to say that endurance is the point of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It's, it's running a long race. It's running a marathon. This is not the NFL combine 40-yard dash. Sprinting is not an appropriate analogy word picture for the Christian life. And we're all running a race. And you might say, well, this doesn't relate to me because I'm not athletic. Well, you're running a race whether you know it or not. You're running your own race. You're running your own marathon. The highs and lows, the ups and downs, facing adversity, unexpected things are happening to you that you're having to endure through by faith, right? 
I got to go on visitation with um, Brother Pete, and we went and visited a couple in our church, uh, kind of a, a senior couple, and we were sitting there in the house, and, and the, the wife is um, bedridden most of the time, and then um, was sitting up in a chair, and she's stationed there and has to be, and has some um, muscle muscle problems and disease has impacted her body, and and she is someone that ever, I've visited just a couple times, one in the hospital and then one time at her house, and the joy of the Lord is at a apex level on this woman's face. It's just beautiful to sit there and see that the body is failing. The spirit is just, is just up and, and Christ honoring and Christ focused. She's running a marathon. She's running her race, right? She's enduring. She's a hero to us. And you, you I got to see some footage on the, on their phone where she was in a harness and being assisted to walk as she's being supported and lifted up in, in belts and a harness and running her race for the glory of God. So everyone has a race. This is for everyone. We're to think like an athlete and have this kind of mindset for the long haul endurance run. So survival is all coming back to preparation. Endurance means being prepared. So Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, let's look at it. Let's, let's see what we can find for preparation. There's really four essential components to running a good race. Four essential components to running a good race. And the first is you got to be motivated. You got to have motivation. If you're like me, if you're unmotivated, you're the worst case for anything athletic. I mean, I'm either all on or all off. I don't really have a middle gear. And so if I'm all off, it's like I've done nothing ever. And we'll never do anything. We have to be motivated. It's essential for competition. The author, who's also a pastor preacher here, I believe, uh, writes that, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, and you skip ahead to the second part of the verse, let us run. The witnesses, who are the witnesses? Who are these people? It's a cloud of witness, witnesses. This word cloud means a large mass. It's a large group of people. The therefore at the beginning of the verse ties everything back to chapter 11. We're talking about the heroes of the faith, all that we've been walking through for the last several months, these men, these women who fought through all kinds of adversity who at some points almost looked like they were going to deny the faith or burn out or fizzle out, but they kept going and hung on to the end. The end of the race is the witness. That's, that's the martyria to us. It's the spiritual witness, like a martyr to the faith, someone who went all the way to the death, even on less revelation than we have, knowing God had spoken to them, knowing that they were on God's path. You know, all the antediluvian pre-flood heroes of the faith, you know, well, you have Noah who, who's building the ark. You have, and then you shoot it all the way through to Rahab, the harlot, this, this unexpected um, non, non-believer who becomes a believer by the testimony of the Israelites, the wandering wilderness generation who believes and says, God must be powerful. I'm going to be a believer. And you have them all the way up through those of whom it says the world was not worthy. Verse 38 of Hebrews 11. These are the witnesses to us. They're the ones who commend the faith to us. Verse 39 of Hebrews 11. It says all these though commended through their faith. 
They were committed. They, same word, they witnessed the faith to us. Chapter 11, verse 2, they received their witness or their commendation. They were affirming, they were affirmed by God to us to be our examples. It's a third class conditional use in verse 1 of Hebrews 12, where it says, since or because of these witnesses that surround us. The picture is like being in an arena where you're getting ready to run your race. You're getting ready to to go for it. And you look up into the stands and you have all of these witnesses looking down like a great cloud upon us to say, you can do it. You can do it. We uh, talked about last week, the complicated verse in verse four, where it says that the heroes of the faith are actually live. They're anticipating something on our behalf. They have not been resurrected yet in God's plan. They played the first half of the story all the way up to the new covenant. They were in the old covenant. They believed God and, and went as all the way to the death in faith. And then Christ came. And these witnesses from that bygone era are awaiting what we're awaiting, which is the ultimate resurrection, where we will receive our bodies perfected when, when Christ returns. It says in verse 40 at the end that apart from us, that's us, we, us, New Testament Christians, they, those old covenant witnesses, should not be made perfect. We're all going to rally at the end. That's what that means, at consummation. We're all going to receive resurrected bodies together in heaven. Now, the focus of verse 1 is less about, less about them now looking upon us, and it's more about their example that we look on them. We're looking at these great warriors of the faith, their legacy, God's faithfulness, seeing them through, and it motivates us to run, to run. I remember being an eighth grader as a little squirt wrestler in, uh, in the wrestling room. I was doing my drills and, um, you know, I was there and I was part of the um, Norfolk and Virginia Beach uh, School of Wrestling. And it's kind of a known thing there that the Granby School of Wrestling impacted wrestling all around. And there was a great coach who won 22 state championships um, for wrestling for Granby High School. And that's Billy Martin. And Billy Martin invented the Granby role and Granby moves and all these things. And he was just a legend. A lot of his students in high school became coaches. So they were coaches in the Chesapeake and Virginia Beach and Norfolk area. And I was under one of them in my junior high school. And at the end of, end of practice or, you know, as practice was kind of closing down, Billy Martin walked in and he was old and crusty. It was awesome. You know, we're there and, and, you know, one of his thumbs was missing. It was pretty cool. And he had, he had a, a toupee that was obvious, you know, but I mean, the atmosphere in the room changed. Yeah. There was gravity in the room when Billy was walking around and you were doing your moves. It's kind of like that with Hebrews 12. You're thinking these heroes of the faith that have gone before, they ran a race that may have looked similar to ours, but God cares uh, not any less about their race than he cares about your race. He cares about your race that you're running, that you're on. He cares about you. So we need to run with this gravity. It's motivation. It's accountability. It takes preparation. So point two is preparation. Point one is motivation. Point two is preparation. It says, let us, verse one, also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Effective competitors 
who are rallying to race will divest themselves of a lot of things. In the Olympic Games, you know that uh, runners and wrestlers and competitors would basically strip away most, if not all, of their clothing to compete. Every weight, every bulk, every encumbrance, every impediment, it could be physical weight or it could be your clothing, they were stripping it down so that they could perform. See, athletes' diet is based on speed and muscle development, protein, making muscles, carbohydrates, producing energy to fire. It's less about eating right and more about not eating wrong when you're competing. It's deprivation. I've heard one person say, you cannot out-train your diet. It's a command to take inventory because if you have things that are in your life weighing you down, you're not going to win. You're not going to feel like competing. You're not going to feel like you can persevere and endure all the way to the end. I always um, feel badly if I ever see um, my kids out there competing and they don't have really good sports equipment. Like if we've lamed out, not bought good equipment for them because you want them to compete at their highest level. You could see it in this way. You've got to have the right equipment to perform well. You don't want to put hiking boots on to run a 40-yard dash, and vice versa. You don't want to try to climb a mountain in running shoes. I've tried it. It's, it doesn't work out well. You have, to, you have to evaluate yourself. You have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, what is it that might not be a sin in my life? That's what this is talking about, every weight. What is it that's just an issue in my life that's causing me to be grounded, like a plane that can't get up off the ground in my fight, in my journey? What is it? What habit pattern do I need to evaluate, maybe give up so that I can run efficiently? I need to do something about my wrong priorities, my wrong habits, my wrong, watch this one, heart attitude that's causing me to limp in the race. A gray area that eventually can become a besetting sin. The Hebrews were very tempted to go back to the original Old Covenant system. They were feeling vulnerable under persecution in the New Testament church, and they were tempted to try to hide back in to their religion, to kind of fade into the background so that they wouldn't be on the forefront of persecution as a believer, as a follower of Jesus who had caused so much problems, um, so many problems to the Roman Empire. And so they were wanting to hide within religion, but religion would have been a ball and chain. It would have been a weight. It would have been the wrong way to approach Christianity. It's wrong. They were obscuring the gospel at that point, which could lead to sin. You know, the, the weight that we carry can lead you right into, and the phrase here is, the sin, and sin which clings so closely, sin that entangles. What is the, it's not there in my English text, but there's a definite article there, the sin, the hamartia, the thing in my life that might be a pattern, a secret sin, something that I need to strip off out of my life. What is it? What is it? What do you need to strip away? What do you need to starve in your life so that you can run your race? You might invite accountability and to kill it and to keep it dead. The picture here is someone who is unwilling to deal with the weight around them, you know, the, the gray area issue in their life that they need to forego. Someone who's unwilling to deal with the sin that they're standing in. 
That person is, is pictured as having vines growing around their ankles, keeping them and clinging to them from keeping them from running. Ken Hughes talked about a uh, carnivorous plant, a insectivo- insectivorous herb that um, lives in bogs, probably in the lower 48. It's leaves that are covered with gland tip adhesive hairs. And I looked this up online. You can watch these hairs in, you know, what is it? Um, you know, fast speed, I forget what that's called. You guys know what I mean. But it's where it's instead of it being slow, they move very quickly because the camera speeds it up. And it's where a fly lands on the gland and it wants to drink, you know, whatever the liquid juice is there. And it's completely not perceiving the fact that it's stuck to the leaf. And then as it's stuck, it's just drinking away. And the tentacles, you know, that have stick them on them come around the fly and kill it because it's just sitting there and it's being like a closed fist, almost like a Venus fly trap is coming around this fly and it starts to struggle, but just keeps on eating and ultimately becomes uh, a a sarcophagus or however you say that. How do you say that? Sarcophagus. Thank you. Wow. It's a morning. All that to say, you get what I'm saying. Just basically a shell, a lifeless shell. Could you imagine Could you imagine leaving a besetting sin in your life where these tentacles are coming around you? These finger-like things are holding you there where you become a shell of a man or a shell of a woman and you don't know what to do. What is your besetting sin? Is it jealousy? Is it being a critic? Is it being angry, bitter? Are you divisive? Are you filled with pride? Probably we can say yes to all of these, right? But is it a besetting sin where you're locked on and it's got tentacles around you because you won't let it go? You won't repent. All these can halt the race and they do. We have to break free of that. And we have to get into a different right mindset. And the key to athletics, the key to doing anything, breaking a bad habit and starting a new one, all begins with your mindset. This is the third point. We need motivation, we need preparation, and then we need fortification, which I might change, if I preach this again, to determination. It's a mindset. It's being fortified. It's digging in for the hard race. It's evaluating the race that you're about to undergo and saying, you know what? Yes and amen. I'm going for this race. This is serious. I'm going to dig in and I'm going to run it. I'm going to run the long, hard race. Your mindset is what keeps you going. When you're in an athletic contest and you feel depleted, you, you're at a crossroads all the way through, right? Where you're saying, you know what? I can't do it anymore. I can't take it anymore. Or you know what? No, I'm going to keep doing this. And as you make that choice, you keep running. This is the heart for Christian sanctification. It's being fortified for your particular race that God has given you to run it's endurance. stick is the call here. That word endurance is such an awesome word. It's hupamone. Endurance is the idea of bearing up under. Mone means to remain and hupa means to be under. 
It's the same, that word mone or minnow is the same word for the vine and branches illustration that Jesus used in John 15. The vine remains in, I mean, the branch remains in the vine and then you have fruit and fruit that remains. It's remaining, it's sticking in, in the fight. I think at times you might think, you know, I need to tap out. I need to just stop This is too hard to be a Christian. It's too hard to be a witness for Christ. It's too hard to stay holy. It's too hard to abstain from the world. It's too difficult. I just want to give up. Well, the mindset that's fortified says, no, I'm going to remain under the pressure. So an endurance race. This is Paul's mindset, 1 Corinthians 9, 23. He's doing everything for the sake of the gospel. He was deferring his rights. He was becoming all things to all men so that he might win some. And he's an athlete. He says, verse 24, do, not, do you not know that in a race, all runners, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. That's the idea of running all the way to the end so that you run so run that you may obtain it. Do you hear that language? Run with intensity. This is not the call to take a stroll. Christianity is the call to run. It's a call to get moving. If you've ever trained and you kind of are, you know, laying out and you, you're hoping the coach isn't watching you, right? You're kind of going around in the crowd and the coach sees you and picks you out and says, run. <laughs> you know, that's the call here is to run. It's to pick it up. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. A lot of people take disqualification as disqualification from ministry. Adakimas, I actually take it as as that we run to persevere in the Christian life so that one day we don't look in the mirror and say, I really wasn't a real Christian. Second Corinthians 13, five uses that same word, adakimas, uh, where he says, examine yourself. Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith unless you fail the test, unless you're adakimas. I take it in that same sense, Hebrews 6, 8, where you're worthless. It's that you find out, you wake up and you say, I wasn't the real thing. I was running on flesh, not the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy 4, 7, and 8, Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, so he persevered all the way to at the end of his life. It's his last will and testament. He's in Roman prison. He's going to die. He says, henceforth, because I have kept the faith, there's laid up for me a crown, the crown of righteousness. In other words, I have the assurance of my salvation. That's what he's saying. I know there's a crown on the other side of my head being chopped off. There's an award to me on that day. And then in verse 10, which is just two verses later, 2 Timothy 4, 10, he compares his finish as contrasting Demas, 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 4, 10, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Paul's endurance was his assurance of salvation. So willingness to bear up under the pressure. The word race is an interesting word, back to Hebrews 12, verse 1. The word race is agon, agon, where we get the English word agony. 
uh, in the Isthmian Games, they would call the race, the, the marathon race, the, the agony race, the agony race. It's, it's meant to hurt. Again, I would never run a marathon. I would also never run Mount Marathon. I just wouldn't do it. I know you're out there. And you're awesome if you do that. That's, that's fantastic. I just can't imagine because I'm such a klutz. I would just never do it. You know, you, you start running up the mountain. There's loose gravel. There's boulders. There's things that happen to you. But, but people do it. And it's an amazing ascent. It's amazing for cardiovascular. And it's also dangerous. But it's agony, I'm sure, to run that race. And that's why people do it. They want to feel that agony. In 1 Timothy 6, 12, Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. You realize the word fight there is agonizomai, agonize the good agony. It's the same idea. It's the idea that you put yourself in a hard situation. You're embracing the struggle that God has given you. You're bearing up under it and you say, I'm going to receive the pressure that's bearing down on me because God puts more in me than he puts on top of me so that I can bear up under it and I'm going to persevere through it. What is your race? You know, I, I, I just wonder because all of you know in your heart what God is testing you to do. If you're engaged in this message and the spirit of God is speaking to you, you probably know, okay, Lord, this is my race. This is the competition you've called me to run. This is my agony race. And through that, you need the fourth component, which is inspiration. This is verse two. We're running the endurance race that is set before us with inspiration. Look at verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You know, where you look in sports really has a lot to do with how you're doing. If you're not looking at the ball, then you're going to miss the ball, right? If you're running a sprint, you're not looking at the finish line, or if you're out of your lane, you're probably not going to win. A lot of times in sports, you have to look and see what you're going to do and project out before you do it, and then you're just doing it. Where you look matters. If you're swimming, you're looking down at the line. If you're running a marathon, you pay attention to your footing and your path. You pay attention to your surroundings and who's around you. Here it says, looking to Jesus. Again, assuming you're in the race, you're to look to Jesus. Now, he's a great exemplar. He's our example. He is the ultimate hero of the faith. He did everything according to the Father's will, so he was actually acting in faith as the Son of God. The word Jesus is used here to reflect Jesus' earthly ministry while he was here. That's how we're supposed to be thinking of him. The word founder is archegos or archegon, and it's a word that means leader, example, in this case, the trailblazer. He's not asking us to do anything that he himself did not do first. We're to look to Jesus. Now, a lot of people will say, we're looking to Jesus at the finish line as we run our race. And I've said that a lot. I've said that from this pulpit. But as I've studied the text, thinking about it in terms of a marathon, you really can't see Jesus at the end of the, the finish line because this isn't a sprint. This is an endurance run. This is the agony race. This is like running up and down Mount Marathon. This is a long race where you can't see the finish line. So what are we talking about here? Uh, interpreting this right, I think, is very important so we don't miss the dynamics that are here. A lot of people will say looking to Jesus, he's the 
example and perfecter of our faith. So founder here just just points to him at the end. You look at the end of the verse uh, where it talks about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we're just inspired because he's there. And so we're supposed to be there as well. But I think taking the words founder and perfecter together, tying them together is the key to understanding how dynamically involved Jesus truly is in your life as you run the race. Founder also means originator. Your faith originated with Jesus touching your life. He opened your blind eyes so that you could see him through the eyes of faith. He's the originator. He is the, and you can interpret the word here, as instigator of your faith. He started it. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He began this work in you as the originator. And then the word perfecter is from the Greek word telos. It's from the beginning to the end. He is all involved in your faith. He's omnipresent. So though he is seated at the right hand of the Father, he is with us always, even to the end of the age. He's running with you. And I don't mean to trivialize our relationship with Christ, but he's the ultimate running partner alongside you as you run your marathon. He started the faith. He's keeping you alive. And he ultimately will be there at the finish. He's carrying you all the way through. As you run, he's running along with you. That's Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. This is running. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's always there. We look to him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled face, we're beholding the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We're looking to him as we run. Thomas Schreiner said it this way. He said, you're pairing um, founder with perfecter. It suggests that both words work together. So the verse teaches both that Jesus is the exemplar of faith and that he also initiates and completes the faith of believers, reminding them that the one who was the source and originator of their faith will also complete and perfect it. Now, he is exalted in heaven. We're going to hit that at the end of verse 2. But don't miss Jesus' nearness. Remember C.H. Spurgeon was asked one time, how do you do all that you do? You preach all the time. You write all the time. You're writing books. You're um, leading an orphanage. You've, you've done all these things. You're pastoring the largest church in England during that time. How do you do it? He simply looked at the guy and said, well, there's two of us. And he meant himself and Jesus. There's two of us. Who you run with matters. I watched a documentary one time and this guy was um, the, he was the narrator of the documentary and he was, you know, videoing himself or someone was videoing him run alongside someone. And the person that was talking to him began to give up halfway through the marathon and they're running and he's starting to bite his words. He says, notice, he was narrating, notice how the guy started biting his words and, and sort of giving up and being negative and saying, I don't want to keep going. I can't press on and I'm not sure. And it really hurts. And suddenly that runner just dropped out, just done. It all has to do with who you're running with, how you're thinking. I mean, we need to be Christ to each other, right? We need to encourage each other in the race and recognize that he is encouraging us all along the way. 
keeps us in the faith. Let me ask a question that has always been curious to me in verse two. I think it's so interesting. He's a perfecter of faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame in his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus have joy going to the cross? Remember Gethsemane? He's, he's falling apart, right? Uh, remember Isaiah 53? He's the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Remember Golgotha? He doesn't seem to be smiling as he's going up with a beam strapped to his back. Well, I think a lot of people will just relegate the joy to the end of the verse. And they say, well, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so in his mind, that's the joy. That's it. Well, I think that also misses the full impact and import of the verse. And I'll tell you why. If you look at verse one, it says that we have a race that's given to us that is set before us. Well, that same phrase set before us is the same phrase that's used in verse two, speaking of Jesus race that was set before him. What was the race that was set before him? Enduring a cross, despising shame, and being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I think all three elements were elements or phases, were phases where Jesus had joy in and through all of them. You say, well, where is that? Well, a lot comes down to how you define charis or joy in scripture. Joy is not in scripture some happy, yippy skippy, um, energized joy. I mean, there are certain people around Anchorage and they're happy all the time. And even in the winter months when it's cold and dark and you know who you are, you know those people and you just go, Why, where are you getting that? That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a deep seated confidence in God where you know he has laid this race before you. He has put this pressure on you. He, is, he has orchestrated this plan for you. And you, by yielding to him, are saying, I'm trusting you and I'm going to exude the fruit of the spirit, which is joy through the trial. Through the trial. You say, well, how does this mesh with Christianity? We'll turn over to James 1. Just look at James 1, 1, James 1, 2. Count it all what? Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, no, kinds no, for you know that the testing of your faith produces, here's this word, same word as Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 uses, steadfastness, hupamone. The trial that you fall into, just like, you know, the person that fell into the group of thieves in in the parable of Christ, you're falling into the trial. This multicolored trial is producing something in you. It's producing in you the ability to bear up under more weight. The more trials, the more weight. The more that you endure through the weight, the stronger you become. God puts us in situations to grow muscle, verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Let hupamone, your underweight, having your muscles break down and rebuild through the trial. As you do that, you're getting stronger. For what effect or what purpose? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's that telos word, that idea that you're gonna, have all the weak areas in your life surfaced and manifest and growing and strengthening as you bear up under your burden. 
And where does the race end? Look at verse 12 of James 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Again, who remains hupamone under the trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. This is, he will finish the course, go into heaven and receive eternal life. We have eternal life now, but you're entering in as a glorified saint into heaven forever and ever. That's the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is Christianity. This is the joy of knowing that we are growing. And this is the joy Christ modeled for us. He was steadfast all the way to the end. We're exhausted. Sometimes we feel like dying, but we push through anyway. What is depression? Depression is where you're empty. It's like being in a fun house where you look at the mirrors in, in that room and you don't recognize yourself anymore. You, you think you are who you are, but you've forgotten really what life is all about and you're sort of free falling and sinking. You don't look like yourself to yourself anymore. Running with joy is running with purpose, with identity, with knowledge that God is in control, that he has sovereignly placed you in this race that he has set before you. A race where you might be mocked. Look at this in verse two. He was despising the shame. Jesus was mocked. He despised the shame. He rejected the, the, um, the stigma of the shame of sin. I'm sure he was indignant. He didn't like it. He, he, he didn't want to be blasphemed. He was a realist about that. But at the same time, he was rejecting his own reputation as he ran his race. You might say, I have failing health. How can I minister? How can I be a part of a race? I don't have any energy. Well, think of Jesus exhausted, breathless, and bleeding out. What did he do? Well, he witnessed the thief on the cross, won him to Christ. He took care of his ailing mother, right? John, take care of her. He prayed for his mockers. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He quoted scripture. He was atoning the sins of the world. Did all of these things in faith. We have a race to run. Paul was in prison. He was chained to a Roman guard. Philippians 1 says that basically he won the whole Praetorian guard by being in that jail in Rome. Never would have had that opportunity otherwise. He also emboldened on Philippians 1.14. He emboldened his brothers to have more confidence in the Lord because of his imprisonment to speak the word without fear. Ultimately, he's victorious. He wins the race. Jesus does. Is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's, at, he's in that rightful place at God the Father's right hand. He's at the center of heaven. He's the centerpiece of heaven. The end of the race in the Isthmian games, games, they had a wreath that was hung as the winner's prize and we strain, we look ahead to that. Jesus is our example. He was motivated, he was prepared, he was fortified and he was inspirational. He was inspired himself. He had it all. This race is one of a kind. And I want to just remind you, it's different than your race, right? But it's no less significant to the Lord. 
she might be the only person in the room that knows what this really means to you for you for your race right I'm not pretending to read your mind. I don't want to over apply this. I just want you to take the principles that are laid out for you in these two verses and run. A couple of my kids, um, they're not here this morning, so I can talk about them. Um, My 12-year-old boys, they were talking about um, wrestling together. And they were saying, you know, one of them said, "I, I don't know if I want to do that tournament. I don't know if I want to keep going. And the other twin looked at him and said, I need you. I need you. Let's do it. That's, that's the camaraderie we need to have as we run the race together, right? Jesus runs with you. We all need to run side by side with each other.